And how embarrassing is it to walk into the police department, show them a picture of a rock, and claim injustice? No, they're like, hey, I, you still own that rock. I see that rock on your phone. You're good, man. <laughs> you're, you're fine. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. How you feeling, man? You got frogs? Still a little froggy, but better, I hope. Better's good. Better's good. It's the right yeah. direction. So, But bad that there's still frogginess. Any frogginess. It's not good. <laughs> Man, the people that was missed last week's episode have no clue what we're talking about right That's now. That's fine. Go back and listen. I won't even explain it. <laughs> hey, on that front, we got new reviews and new premium subscribers. So thanks so much, guys. Uh, that's really awesome. Makes us smile. Yeah, appreciate it. And please do go rate and review the podcast if you like it. Premium subscribe if you love it. SkippyDougals.Supercast.com is the uh, premium subscription spot. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Speaking of thank you so much, we got listener mail. Yeah, listener mail, our favorite it, thing. Uh, you want to hit on the the first piece around selling rocks? Well, I mean, Dougals, I read this, and I've read about this for a long time. There's some special rocks. I got to pull up the article here. <laughs> and apparently they're worth a million bucks, but like this is a JPEG of a rock. And it's not even a detailed rock. So sorry, should I just get my rant out of the way yeah, right Yeah, just here? do it. Um. For some reason or another, people sell these things for like a million bucks. I don't know why. Um, again, my solution to NFTs is to take a screenshot on your phone and then show it to your friends and claim you own it. But uh, that's a, I think that's a VFT, a very fungible token, <laughs> is when you take the screenshot. But that's hey, that's fair. On my phone, it's not fungin. There's no fungin going on. All right, <laughs> looks the same fungin. every time I look at that picture. <laughs> Zero fun. Love it. Yeah. It's beautiful. This- I can print it out. I can do it. Anyway, I'm on a tangent now. So this rock is apparently worth a million bucks, or that's the market for it. I, let's not say worth, because that just doesn't feel right. And some dude was like, hey, I could use a million bucks. He he technically owns this thing on blockchain. He went to post it, and he used the wrong unit of ETH. He meant to post it for 144 ETH, which is about... I think it's like 1.2 million bucks. And he posted it for 444 Wii, if I'm saying that right, W-E-Y, which is the equivalent of about two bucks. Can you I guess how quickly that thing sold, Diggles? Immediacy. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I summarize this by saying, when you are selling something that is worthless, that is based on something else, that is, when I say worthless, I mean inherently, no inherent yeah. value. Yeah. That is based on something that also has no inherent value. That is based on something that also has no inherent value. You really can't be upset when you get the wrong unit. Like you can't, because <laughs> you kind of can't get the wrong unit. Like it's <laughs> all units are equally. Because it's invalid. all nothing. <laughs> yeah. But ridiculous. Let's just say the crypto space is still developing. We're, we're going to talk about it more in the show, but. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to laugh at this guy. I'd be heartbroken if I effectively, you know, made a computer mistake that cost me a million dollars. But man, is that something? The 
sucky thing here, I think, and I might be incorrect in this, but I would think is if it was something that did have inherent value, there could be recourse because there's like an obvious error that was made. Like, I believe like if you said, um, let's say someone went on and I might be wrong again. If someone went on though and sold gold and let's say gold, I don't know what gold is right now. It's a couple grand an ounce or something, whatever. Yeah. Let's say that they sold their gold for a dollar an ounce. And they went, oh, that was an accident. Like someone could come in and say that was an obvious accident because like there's a whole market, right? That exists for, for gold, right? Gold's $2,000 an ounce. If you sold it for $2 an ounce, yep. you made a mistake. But again, the no inherent value on top of no inherent value on top of no inherent value makes it pretty tough to claim anything. And And how embarrassing is it? And how embarrassing is it to walk into the police department Show them a picture of a rock and claim injustice. No, they're like, hey, I, you still own that rock. I see that rock on your phone. You're good, man. <laughs> you're, you're fine. Actually, I'm going to walk a picture of this rock, and we're all good now. <laughs> Thank you for the listener mail. Thanks for sending that in. It's uh, ugh, alas, alas. All right. I want to reach into the fishbowl and start us off with a convo about money. And what is it? Uh, Lynn Alden created a post called What is Money? Uh, and it's very long. So, which Lynn likes to do. Lynn goes deep. Love it. Very long. So we can put, if you want the full, like full Monty, we'll put it out there so you can take a look. Um, it'll take you a while to get through. But what Lynn does is walks through basically the history of different types of money. And I think it's fascinating because, well, I'm me. You all, you all know that. But gonna hear just give a few of the highlights from it and then you can choose whether or not you want to go in deeper yeah i'll just say like i do love i didn't make it all the way through this one but i love this type of stuff i've read five flavors of this article mostly related to bitcoin in the past you know three years and it's always fascinating to think about the inherent properties of what people assign value to in order to transact and how that's evolved it's it's really good stuff it's very nice. Highlights. Four things you can do with money. You can consume it. So buy stuff with it. You can save it. You can invest it. And you can share it. Saving and investing, the differences there are saving is something that is like liquid, not risky. Like you just hold yeah. it in cash. Basically, that means you have the money. Investing is when you're taking a risk in order to have it grow at a higher rate. And then sharing is giving it to folks. So four things you can do with money. Then there's this I don't know how else to put this. It's basically what are, what are the properties, what are the attributes yep. of money uh, or potential ones that I think are interesting here. And there are a bunch of them. So try I'll try and do this quickly. Money should be divisible, portable, durable, fungible, verifiable, and scarce. In, in the last one is sometimes also has utility in its own right, but not always. Again, divisible. You can have different units of it. Portable means you can take it places. Durable yeah. means like it'll last over time, right? Et cetera. So all these attributes. Well, you no, know, but portable gets um, gets forgotten often. And portable is a really key aspect of yep. this. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. But I, yeah. I just don't think everyone always remembers that portability is basically king. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And I wasn't going to go into any detail on this, but since you brought that up, I will while, while going through here talking about rye stones. I'm going to talk about some rye stones in a second. Yeah. Um, so over time, there have been four stages of money 
the fourth is the the newest that we'll talk about before we get to the rye stones here the according to this piece the post the first is commodity money so that's like stuff that you things that you have so like gold rye stones which i'll discuss african beads livestock there are a few other examples they give here and rye stones i never knew about these rye stones but i read about the rye stones in this post i think it's fascinating so there's this group of individuals um i think the yap the yaps or what they were called and what they they created um, out of limestone these things they called rye stones i think they're like kind of sunstones or something like that but so they would go and grab the limestone and come and create uh big circles and the bigger the better right and okay. so they would have these pieces of limestone that were 10 feet in diameter and weighed thousands of pounds and that <laughs> right? was their money that was that was currency? money well that was the big that's like the big currency right they'd also have small <laughs> ones right um and so you talk about portability no so they would they'd go to this island and get the limestone and people would die on the way back because you're in a wooden boat carrying yeah. like thousands of pounds of limestone <laughs> You're right, like, so, I'm going to be rich or my boat's going to capsize on the way back. I'm not sure which, but exactly. it seems worth it. And and this is this is a place. This is not where the ledger was or was created, but this is like a, an example of where a ledger becomes valuable because of how the lack of portability with these things. They'd be like, OK, so I've got this 2000 pound limestone. You're buying it from me or I'm trading it with me, whatever it might be. I'm not taking it to you. Like, let me just be clear. I'm not taking it to you. <laughs> But I'm just going to record like Dougal's used to own. Now Skippy owns. The community agrees with the ledger. And so. Yeah, and then Dougal's, when I said, decide to put international sanctions on you, I just walk over to 2,000 pound stone and break that thing into pieces and destroy your entire economy. Right yeah. So I actually had no intention of going to the rye stone here, but now you're, you're taking me deep. <laughs> but a little bit, that's kind of what happened because the uh, they were invaded. Right. Yeah. And so and so people like um, they put the people to labor and whatnot. And they were like, we don't want your Spanish currency. I think it might have been the Spanish. I can't remember. We don't want your Spanish currency. We have our rye stones. And the Spaniards said, oh, do you? And then just basically started like defacing the stones. And so it's a anyway. Yeah, it's a whole thing. So that's that's the first stage was commodity. Second was gold, the gold standard yep. and the gold standard. So gold is a commodity. But the gold standard is basically the commodity that won out. Sure. So, so over time, I said, okay, we need to we need to tie this to something. And so, gold and silver were the two potentials. Gold won out for TBD reasons. Um, but anyway, so uh, countries started holding gold in their vaults, and they tied their currencies to gold. So that's stage two. Stage three, eventually, governments were like, okay, you can't redeem money for gold anymore because we we want to keep printing money but if we're on the gold standard we can't do that and so things like wars and crises made it difficult for uh, for countries to then just hold the gold standard and so a couple times in the 20th century once was um i think it was fdr was i think the first um when we were hitting the great depression and then nixon finally got the us specifically off of the gold standard so it's only been 50 years yeah. that we've been off the gold standard and then we went to the next phase which was fiat currency so fiat is faith. And so this is just you have paper money. Everyone agrees that it's money, that its units are what they are. There's no standard necessarily backing it, 100% at least. And mm -hmm. so there you go. So that, that's, that's fiat. The last, which we'll talk about, is digital. Um, but before we get to digital, one thing I really, a line I liked in this post about fiat is saying that 
There's currency, which you can call money. It's a stage of money. But currency actually acts like money most of the time until one day it doesn't. And that they were specifically touching on Russia <laughs> in this because if you have something like we mentioned utility earlier, if you have a form of money that in its own right has inherent value, then it's much harder for it to be denied when you take it somewhere, right? Yeah. But, but if you have a currency, the currency is actually, it's a, like a social contract that I have with like Dougal's has with Skippy, for example, where yeah. you're agreeing this is worth this piece of paper that I printed is worth something. And now if I start a war and you go, nope, your paper is actually no longer worth something, it's no longer money. And so that's why they're saying like currency is money until one day it's not like that is the thing with fiat currency is that it's based on fiat. And so yeah. so like if people lose faith. Right. Um, and I just think it was an interesting like line that they put in there. Whereas if you have something that's like gold, it's like, well, it is it is valid. Like I will always take your gold because I want gold. Um, right. And so so that that that's something I thought was interesting. I'll pause before making a little bit of a, a digital transition. No, I love the the point you made with fiat there it's good can be good for a track record of hundreds of years maybe even more and then one day it's not and that's where when when people get fired up about deficit spending or other poor decisions that say just use the us as an example might make it's because it's a fairly fragile tie to a true currency if you don't carefully guard that protection and there's examples from all over the world <laughs> fiat currencies do not stick around that long there's crises all the time so yeah you got, you got to keep your fiat in check it's the thing you have yeah. fiat currency. and your it's ego like, yeah yeah if people aren't and, yachting you at the moment then i mean this is uh i won't go on this digit but biden came out with his 5.6 trillion dollar budget or something I'm old enough to remember Diggles when budgets used to be like one trillion, two trillion bucks. Like we're just gonna spend our way out of, you know, he upped military spending, social spending, everything else. And and he'll claim that he pared down his FDR style ambitions. So uh, my mini rant is just like we seem to ha have think think in this country that our fiat's gonna be good for ever regardless of if we recklessly spend for decades on end which it seems like we're moving towards it's frustrating it, it's something it's a it's unprecedented that's uh, what it is it's yeah. like and so we we don't exactly know where we're going but yeah maybe, maybe we'll even talk about that a little later we'll see well so last is digital as i mentioned uh and there's private and then there's public digital currencies I'm going to hit on the public first and then use the private as a transition to some other uh, cryptocurrency related stuff. Public is we've discussed here and you may have seen elsewhere that governments, when I say public here, I mean the government, uh, governments are either testing or creating their own digital currencies. China has been testing it for a few years. There's gums flapping in the US about potentially doing it. We'll see whether or not we end up doing something, but we probably end up needing to. Um, the listed out in this this piece were 10 points as to why public has advantages for the government. So this is like from the government's perspective, why public digital currencies have advantages. Um, you can send international payments without the SWIFT system. So SWIFT, we've discussed before, yep. is like a kind of a US dominated system 
of how different banks around the world talk to each other. Well, hold on now. It's based in Switzerland. So <laughs> let's say a West. It's, it's part of Western culture. Okay. Yes. Well, whatever. I mean, you got a little... <laughs> anyway, number two. Um, it can give banking access to the non-banked or underbanked populations in your country. Three, you can track and surveil any transaction. Yeah, four, there's pros and cons to that. All right. I'm saying for for the from the government's perspective, this is oh, yeah, these are the advantages. Yeah. Number four, you can blacklist or block certain transactions that violate your rules. Five, you can add expiration dates or jurisdiction limitations to the currency. I think that one's really actually pretty interesting uh, with that. Yeah, smart contract stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. Yep. Six, you can take away money from a, from citizen wallets for various violations. So that's a bunch of control. Seven, you can give money to citizen, citizen wallets for stimulus or rewards, right? In a more controlled mm -hmm. fashion, in theory. Mm -hmm. Eight, you can impose deeply negative interest rates on citizen account balances, which we, we have oh, baby. touched on. The Skip and Dougal show is the only show talking about that in the entire <laughs> world. So. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and we we talked to James McIntosh of the Wall Street Journal last year. Um, if folks want to go back and listen to that episode, uh, number nine, program money can have different rules for different groups. Yep, interesting. And ten was you reduce the control and fee pressure that commercial banks have over the system. So those are the ten reasons stated in this post. Man, that list is the most terrifying list ever. <laughs> to to just have no to just have the government be like, oh, Skippy's been saving his whole life to do this on our digital currency and we don't like him anymore like we think that we have video of him running a red light we're we're stealing all his money he's yeah. he's now homeless like that just does not seem okay and, and there's other slippery slope uh, points on that 10 uh point list too yeah. I, yeah I don't that i i guess i hadn't heard it broken down that way but i have a lot of stomach pain around that list <laughs> There's, yeah it gives you some heartburn looking looking through that list um, which is why it's from the government perspective like those yeah. are the advantages private is almost the opposite i'll say now i i read this piece uh in the new york times called the late comers guide to crypto and it's meant to be a crypto explainer written by kevin roos i think it's worth reading i want to give an even later comers guide um, real, real quick, because even I read through this and said, the questions that I generally get about blockchain, crypto, NFTs, people are at an even more fundamental level than what, um, because it, because yeah. it's, it's like complicated and actually conceptually confusing the whole mm -hmm. thing. And so I want to give what I hopefully close to like a 45 second low fidelity description of what crypto is. And I can't you wait know more to about see. crypto. Yeah, yeah I can't low, wait to see fidelity. if you can nail this. Yeah. Low, low fidelity. So first, in order to understand crypto, we should understand a ledger. We discussed a ledger earlier. So yeah. if you take something like a Venmo, right, or even a bank, but let's just say Venmo. Venmo keeps tabs on transactions. So what I'm sending to you, what you're sending to this other friend. That's just a ledger so that you can know what account balances are and who's sending to who. That's a ledger anywhere. If you have someone like a Venmo that that um that is keeping track of that ledger they own the ledger they have all the data they can do what they want with it right now i introduce blockchain blockchain is a ledger that is no longer centralized meaning not one entity or person owns it 
So it was a decentralized ledger. So multiple computers around the world will hold this ledger, right? And it is encrypted in such a way that in theory has higher levels of security and the lack of ownership. That is blockchain. Blockchain came about, as far as I know, from a white paper created by Satoshi, who is not in Florida. FYI, I'm just going to throw <laughs> hey, that out there. That's up for debate. <laughs> yeah, that's up for debate. <laughs> anyway, um, but this guy Satoshi created this white paper about 13 years ago. Blockchain was created. Crypto are currencies that use the blockchain to allow for decentralized payments from one individual to another, which means there is a ledger that is decentralized. And public. And public. That's very important. Public's important. Which is one of the reasons why I used Venmo as an example. Because you can make your your transactions on Venmo private, but let's just say like the default. Most people. public. So if you go on to Venmo, if anyone's used that, you take a look at your Venmo and you can see like Josh paid Sally $12, right? If you think about a public blockchain, it'll say 92659 owns this or paid this to one, two, nine, three, four. And so when people are stealing a whole bunch of money, because they say like crypto is great for crime, when they steal a whole bunch of money, as we've discussed before, what you know is this account sent to that account, but you don't know the owner. And so it's not necessarily great for crime because we know that that account has the money. So now what the, what people have to do, the law enforcement has to figure out who owns that account. And then you, you know, so that is my baseline description of crypto. You understand the ledger, then you can understand blockchain, and then crypto is just money traded on it. Again, low fidelity, lots of nuance, but I hope that's helpful. Yeah, so there's so much there, but I think you did a really nice job. So let's, I, I don't know that we say this enough with, you know, we, we are here to talk about investing because we find it interesting. We are very much like James McIntosh that uh, this is something that's, endlessly challenging and interesting. And that's why we talk about it, right? But I don't know that we give enough caveats about how difficult this is, how many known unknowns there might be in the space. And and in the crypto world, there's even more. So Dougals, I'm looking at a Bloomberg article on my screen because there was another big crypto hack this week that lists 10 different large crypto hacks that have happened within the past seven years ranging between $130 million stolen and and $611 million stolen. On top of that, I'll tell a personal story about how much the crypto world is the wild, wild west. I explored a crypto index fund a while back, and I was trying to build it. The listeners may remember this. And then I found a shop out of South Africa, and I had a few bucks in there. This week, at the end of Q1 2020, they decided to take their crypto exchange off the Ethereum platform and move it to um, Polygon. And they informed people on that via two posts over the last two weeks on social networks. I didn't catch those. I went in to look at my wallet and the balance for that fund was zero dollars because they just they just pulled the rug out of what was going on wow. with ethereum even though this is a legit shop so i'm working with their compliance and i'll get my money back i mean no big deal but stuff like that happens in the crypto space in a way where if fidelity or e-trade or vanguard is your asset manager to it ties to this whole conversation right this decentralized versus centralized piece when you have a central authority in place and you sell your rock that's worth a million bucks for two dollars 
someone usually steps in and says, you know what? We, we control this ledger. We're going to adjust that. We're going to, you know, pull that back and, and start fresh. The more I've played around with the decentralized space, I think there might be more cons than pros because you see these things happen, whether it's with $600 million hacks or someone mistyping something on a keyboard and costing themselves a million dollars. And it's really hard, if not impossible, to pull the ledger back to correct the ledger, right? Centralized has its, uh, its cons in that someone owns it and you have to trust that. It has yeah. its pros in that someone owns it. <laughs> and, and, and that's like, actually a really big pro. Now, if you're Putin and you're going, uh, someone owns the world financial system that's not me, man, do I wish this was decentralized. Sure, you have a point. But also when it's decentralized and someone smarter than you feels out how to steal half your government reserves and you don't have a way to, I mean, that wouldn't happen in the government currency that you talked about because they would maintain ownership. But if, if Iran and Russia and some other players decided they wanted to do everything on the Bitcoin network, I think there would probably be a transaction or two that went against their wishes and they'd have a really hard time reversing those things. Yeah, it's kind of you brought up uh, with regard to crypto a number of times examples of people that are in places where their currency is no bueno, I'll call it for the time being, and how having something that is decentralized can be really helpful there. We talked about Afghanistan, we've talked about South American countries right now with Russia, Ukraine. So it's kind of like centralized is great as the predominant maybe in a number of ways, but having alternatives is also really healthy. What's hard to imagine is the decentralized as the dominant, at least in today's world. Look, we're, it's nascent, we're yeah. early. And so what the future looks like, like TBD. But when you have hotshot Bukele building volcano-based, like mini-me, yeah. um, you know, installations of Bitcoin, like that is, that's, that's nascent stuff that we can't quite bet the farm on yet. So, and on the, uh, I want to, I'm going to just uh, reach into the fishbowl you just reached into for a sec here, though. Yeah. Because looking at this, the $600 plus million hack that you were talking about happened recently. It was in this game called Axie Infinity. Mm-hmm. I only want to highlight this because it, so the hack does not make me chuckle. But what Axie Infinity is did make me chuckle. Axie Infinity is a game where players breed and battle with digital pets. Yep. These digital pets are axolotls. Yep. Which is where Axie comes from. Right now. No, actually not right now. Go finish the episode. Okay. But then right after, right after <laughs> you finish the episode, if you don't know what an axolotl is, Google it. A-X-O-L-O-T-L. <laughs> Google it. You might become, you're either going to be like, oh, so cute. Or you will be frightened. Because <laughs> those are the only two feelings you can have about an axolotl. It is like a rare-ish animal that is banned to have in, in many states, but in possibly countries as well. But go Google it. Because I just picture, <laughs> I'm picturing people <laughs> battling or breeding with these things. And I just go, okay. But anyway, so there's this game. It was the uh, well, the blockchain. Axis Infinity, the, the game, is uh, is a superstar of the crypto community because a lot of the gameplay was like tied to blockchain and then the pets have real value. So it's 
when people talk web three, sometimes that's one of the examples they throw out. But after the hack, maybe that gets pulled back a little bit. Again, guys, this is it's all risky stuff. The crypto stuff is a whole level of uh it, it's even riskier than the average equity investments we're talking about here. So uh, it's interesting, no doubt. The technology is fascinating, no doubt. But don't think it's like a free lunch out there. No free lunch. Speaking of free lunches, what's in your fishbowl? Man, can we just talk about... It, it, can we just continue to talk about people making poor investment decisions? So do you know the, the most popular stocks that get traded today, Dougals? Oh, you're going to give me heartburn. <laughs> ProShares Ultra QQQ, which is a... Three times levered QQQ, then S and P five hundred spy, which is good. Okay. Um, yep. Then ProShares Alter VIX short term futures ETF. Like just <laughs> if you hear some tide of volatility with futures of the same name, just like run away and hide. Then ProShares Alter Short QQQ, which if I remember correctly is a leveraged short of the QQQ. And then QQQ, the non-levered version, like actively traded in 2020 in terms of millions of contracts. The ProShares Ultra QQQ has like 120 million contracts out this year. Okay, as I woos on myself, a couple definitions, because <laughs> this gets me so much heartburn. Yeah, sorry, I just dove into like the meat. I didn't, <laughs> which is great, which is great. So QQQ is an ETF that which an ETF is basically like a, a mutual fund kind of yeah. with tax advantages. So an ETF that is based on the 100 largest companies by market cap in the NASDAQ. So basically it's very tech heavy. Yep. Which is uh, riskier. If you're familiar with beta, they're going to be uh, <laughs> higher beta stocks, which means yep. they uh, will have Bigger upswings and bigger downswings than the, say, the S&P 500. Yes. So you have that ETF. And then when Skippy was talking about leveraged ETFs, that means you're taking QQQ and multiplying it by two or three. Except With not death. quite. Except not quite. <laughs> yeah. Which well, I'll get to in a sec. Which I'll get to in a sec. The, uh, he also mentioned inverse ETFs, which is basically taking the opposite trade. And you can do that leverage too. Yeah, and typically shorting other contracts, all complicated stuff that you're that these should be among the least traded um, ETFs in the space rather than near the uh, most traded. Yeah, it's okay. So I have two material issues here. One is so there's this Wall Street Journal article. This is coming from riskiest bets in the stock market are the most popular. In this piece, it starts off with the following. I'm gonna get I'm gonna read a couple paragraphs. I think the paragraphs are split here, but when technology stocks tumbled for a fourth straight day in fourth straight day, that's not that's not that long period of time. Anyway, in four January, days. it is four days. It is by four definition. Days. Evan Fetter, a 25-year-old in the US military, saw an opportunity to swing for the fences. He poured $15,000 into the ProShares Ultra QQQ, an exchange-traded product that is designed to triple the daily return of the NASDAQ 100, bidding for what he called a once-in-a-lifetime gain. Okay. Okay. Issue, there, there's 36 issues just in those two sentences I just read. 
But issue number one for me, big issue number one is just on the last four words. Once in five, well, no. <laughs> once in a lifetime game. Once no, in listen, a lifetime game. Listen, I know that you hope your life expectancy is 80 to 100 years. Maybe this guy thinks his life is only going to last five days, Dougals. And then this is <laughs> exactly. a once in a lifetime, which doesn't really make sense because I guess he's 25 years old. But that's basically the only logic here, right? If, you, yes. if your lifetime is five to 10 days, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So let's bring some stats into this right quick. Okay. All right. These will not be exact because I went back and just like looked at uh, charts and stuff, but once in a lifetime. So just one, let's another definition. Once in a lifetime means one time in a lifetime. So let, let's just, let's give that definition. <laughs> On the okay. Skipping Doogle show anyway. Like Yeah, at least here. That, that's what it means here. So QQQ, the drawdown for it, drawdown being the last high to the, to the low about 20% is where it was. Uh, there's been a rebound recently, but QQQ. So the, this once in a lifetime opportunity they're talking about was about 20% down from its high, QQQ. Okay, once in a lifetime. Back in 2020, two years ago, it was down like 27% from yeah. its high. Okay, 2018, two, two years before that, it was down about 22% from its high that year. Between July, 5th, July of 2015 and February 2016, there were three different points where it was down 15% or more. So there's a four-year respite then. So I'll give you the four years. So four days we're talking about here, four-year respite. Then you go back to 2011, there was a 16% drop. But yeah. even during those four years, there were multiple 10% plus, so corrections, multiple 10% plus drops. Same thing happened, another 16% drop in 2010, so the year before. Between October 2007 and March 2009, there was a 53% drop in the QQQ. And I'm, I'm not even going to go past that, except to say, as you've mentioned multiple times, that NASDAQ was down like 80% during the 82%, baby, in okay. the early 2000s. Yeah. So this is once in a lifetime if someone has been alive for less than two years. <laughs> it's once in a lifetime. If you've been alive for even 15 years, you've seen nine or 10 of these. <laughs> yeah, so, but you didn't have a Robinhood account 15 years ago. So you weren't <laughs> even, you didn't even know what QQQ is. You probably still don't know what QQQ is, but you saw some commercials on March Madness, which claims that you can invest in someone dunking on someone else's head in a fun way. So come on, yeah. Doogles. Now imagine we've talked about uh, Warren Buffet. My, my good friend. Um, yeah, yes. We've talked about Buffett a few times and Munger, right? Their lifetime, <laughs> like the, you can, one, uh, as you've mentioned, Warren Buffett has some kind of like unprecedented ability to delay gratification is one. Yep. And two, has a long lifetime in his 90s. Yeah. And so the patience on that individual Sometimes maybe he just falls asleep. Let's be honest, because he's old and just doesn't see these things. But but the patience is like quite incredible because you know that this stuff happens like nearly all the time. And yeah. so a once in a lifetime opportunity means something very, very different. That that's my that's my first issue. Once in a lifetime. Should I go into my second issue? 
That was a good five minutes on like <laughs> five words. <laughs> yeah, Isn't we better get to the second issue. Yeah, sorry. My second issue, I'll try and make this shorter. My second issue is on the leverage part of this. So these, these leverage ETFs are meant to be held for a day. And so they use derivatives and all sorts of other nonsense. Well, let's say they're daily contracts in most yeah. cases rather than... so. This is frustrating and super confusing. It sounds like if QQQ goes down by 3% and you're three times levered to the inverse, again, guys, we don't recommend any of this on the show. It sounds like you should get a 9% positive return. That's not actually what happens in actuality, assuming that 3% drawdown with the QQQ happens over multiple days because of the way these contracts are structured. And they have to do that, as I understand it, so the fund doesn't go bankrupt with basically the way they pick their leverage. It's really complex. Yeah. You have the general, I'm going to call it coin flip, not that, not because it's 50-50, but just from like luck of the draw. Yeah. You have a general coin flip as to whether the bet you're making is even in the right direction. Then you have a compounded coin flip as to whether the leverage ETF you bought is going to do what it's even supposed to do because of the daily contract nature of it so you're not even sure what you're buying like ultimately in the end if you're holding this for an extended period of time yeah i'm just think research think if you are 25 years old good news is you've got your life ahead of you time is on your side you can make your mistakes now bad news is you should probably be in things that you're going to hold for a long period of time such that you can take advantage of compounding that's all well you said he has his life ahead of him i mean just imagine how excited he's going to be next week when he gets a brand five new days to it's another lifetime yeah all right that is good news yeah every week you get five more days (laughs) oh my goodness what else you got in the fishbowl um, I won't talk about it in detail, but I like that there was a, a piece on Alpha Architect that trashed on the efficient market hypothesis this week. That's pretty good. It's called Are Stock Market Bubbles Identifiable? And then, yeah, let's talk about the bond market. Well, so, do you want to talk about your first thing or, or the Alpha Architect? No, I just wanted to mention it so people can do a deep dive. All right. Headline Dougals. Bond market suffers worst quarter in decades. We told you this was coming. Yes. Yeah. The wild thing with this is when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. When interest rates go down, bond prices go up. It's understandable that when interest rates are being raised, that you start to have bad bond performance. But you don't have hope today of interest rates going down to increase the prices of bonds. So what do you do with this information? Like it's a different time period than we had 40 years ago. What, in your view, what do you do with this information? Buy the dip? Oh no, um, that, I've diversified out of bonds, which is pretty much the first time in vi- my investing life that I've diversified out of bonds. So this is a very fascinating thing. The 60-40 portfolio, if you're not familiar, is the common guidance for your know-nothing investor. And what it means is 60% equities and 40% bonds. Historically, during the backtest, that has really incredible performance. 
but most of those back tests involve a period from 1980 to basically 2020 where bond prices went from i think it's like 18 percent to effectively zero and because of the inverse correlation you just talked about that means bonds performance are like historically great when you do the flip side of that and go from basically zero up to 18 assuming that happens over the next 40 years the bond price performance would be very very poor Dougals, i have a quick aside here i'm reading a new book called the bond king about bill gross and pimco oh uh, yeah let me know what you think when you're done i'm halfway through pretty solid have you read it i haven't i haven't but i was okay. thinking about it pimco at one point became so tied to u.s government policy that they got a lot of risk-free trades and the, the bailouts that happened with Fred, Freddie and Fannie, um, at that point, Bill Gross is loading up on their debt and saying these are effectively, they were, they were priced as if the quasi-government organizations could go bankrupt, but they were effectively guaranteed by the full faith of the government. So he loaded up on that debt. That, it brought back this wave of memories for me because I was actually buying the Freddie equity at that point with the same hypothesis of like the government's not going to let this go under that the government has come in in after 2008 and said, we're backing this. Um, but the fascinating part about that book, I'll tell you is how frequently he got risk-free trades in a way that probably wasn't fair by collaborating with the government. And during some of the, the tarp stuff in 2009, 2010 too, the government tapped PIMCO as a strategic buyer of bonds. So they got another free lunch. It's a fascinating read. Um, it doesn't necessarily end well. So maybe we'll talk about that in detail next week. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, now with your even halfway through recommendation, I, I'm certainly going to pick this thing up. Yeah, but as that ties to this, and, and the reason I mentioned Bill Gross is when Bill Gross is the bond king and has this incredible reputation, even he realized that he had been picking bonds from the mid seventies to, you know, basically today. And he knew the headwind that was behind him. So his performance would not have been anywhere close if bond, uh, if bond rates were going up and therefore prices were falling. So according to, if we tie back to the article, bond performance this quarter with the Bloomberg US aggregate index was about negative 6%. That is pretty rare in the grand scheme of things. The For last bonds, time we had worse yeah. performance, yeah, was, sorry, was uh, 1980. Yep. Yeah. That's, it's wild. And, and to be, to correct me if, if I'm wrong here, but to be clear, the bond yield bond price, so that, that's, that's a true inverse correlation. But if you're holding a bond to maturity, you don't necessarily have to worry about that. You end up getting the the full amount, right? But if you're buying into like bond ETFs, but not which which most people are going to be, and you're then you're likely not you're like, oh, you're gonna buy it at some point, sell it at some point, then you're gonna you're gonna end up getting hit by some of this, I believe. Well, yeah. So this ties back, and and if people are interested, the Bond King book is a great place to do this. Let's see if I can do it justice. But if you need a hundred bucks, right? Diggles and you come to me and you issue a bond for a hundred bucks that matures in a year, say, I'm going to give you that hundred dollars and you're going to pay me interest effectively. We'll just say you pay me a dollar a month. So for the next 12 months, you're going to pay me a dollar 
And then 12 months from today, you're going to pay me my $100 back. So I get a total of $112. The thing that happens is as interest rates change, that bond term is fixed. But as interest rates change um, in the world around us, people might look at that stream of payments and go, oh, that either got more valuable to me or less valuable to me. And that's where the price on the secondary market, which effectively Bill Gross created, he created that whole secondary market. He created that whole idea of trading the bonds. That's what's going to swing up or down. And that's where if you hold a mutual fund or ETF that ties to bonds, you're going to see price movement there. But the revenue stream remains fixed. Yeah. Yep. I think that was a very good explanation. Well played. I get lucky every now and then. <laughs> All right. What's it's in like your fishbowl? Yeah. After like decades of being <laughs> it's, this this stuff is complicated though like that's that's the whole thing um i have one more thing in the fishbowl and it's your favorite topic which is why i want to bring it up the billionaire tax is back baby the billionaire oh, tax wow. is back the the highlights i'll throw out and then i want to get your rant or general reaction um and we've talked about the billionaire tax or wealth tax here a few times in the past. It's been brought up a good amount. This newest proposal would have people that are worth $100 million or more pay a minimum of 20% on their capital gains each year, whether they sold the thing or not. So in today's world, if you sell something, you have realized gains, you have to pay tax on it. This is saying unrealized and realized capital gains you have to pay. It's going to require that people track and report their overall wealth, right? Which is complicated. It's going to re require that the IRS tracks that, which is complicated. Um, and I don't know how exactly this would work, but what I was reading is that you wouldn't necessarily, especially for illiquid things, you wouldn't necessarily have to pay the full tax in that year. You could split it up over multiple years, which mm -hmm. sounds like all of this sounds like a complete administrative headache. Ignore the the uh, financial side of it, but the billionaire tax is back and sounds different than the wealth tax that was proposed about a, a year ago from what I read. I'll, I shall pause. I mean, at this point, I need to just write down whatever episode it was where I already ranted about this and refer people to this. It, the logistics are just impossible, man. And it, I understand the idea. I think there's such better approaches. If you just want to say that like the tax rate in this country is 20% and you don't need an accountant to file, you could simplify a lot of these things and you could make it so the loopholes that the wealthiest Americans take advantage of get removed. There's a, in one of the articles I read on this, it said, you know, the average person that's worth more than a hundred million pays a tax rate of, I don't know, five or 8%, you know, some seemingly too low number because their tax bracket is actually in the 30s probably it's actually it might even be higher than that uh what's the top tax bracket these days is it 39.6 yeah. it's something like that plus the like medicare uh, true and then um and then your state could so yeah it could easily be in the 40s yep. especially if you're in like a california or new york but that's not typically what they pay because of all the loopholes so fix it that way Anyway, the, the thing that always gets me fired up is this tax on wealth that isn't necessarily liquid wealth. Like, I own this company. 
and I am reinvesting the profits of that company to grow that company. And all of a sudden you're going to say, oh, you know what? Give me 20 million bucks. And you're like, well, I don't really have 20 million bucks. I'm trying to hire 7,000 more employees and build two factories. You know, like it just doesn't work. In my yeah, that's, that's the, uh, like the Milton Friedman like stance. I think similar to that, I'm not saying that you take the pure Milton Friedman stance, but he was pretty anti-government from a, like at least anti-large government, I shouldn't say anti-government, uh, anti-large government. And specifically here had the take where we're like, why don't we just make a, like a flat tax and then get rid of all the discounts and the deductions and like all that and just say like, you're going to pay 20%. Now there's reasons, there's pros and cons, right? To that kind of thing. But with that, that's what it just reminded me of. Yeah, it's a, in my mind, the thought of, there are very, very, very large pools of money, organizations that have larger pools of money than our government that exist out there, right, in this country. And the government's hurting. How do we get it? Like, I, I think, like, I understand that train of thought, but the consequences of implementing something like this are actually really hard to even understand because there are, like, there are these compound effects. Last week, we were talking about unwinding of stuff when you start to unwind illiquid businesses, what, what are the ramifications on prices and employment and, um, and belief in future investment, right? Because now you're taking, if as many people will say, and I hold some belief in this, if, if not complete, that like private property is one of the things and the protection of that intellectual private uh, property and, and private property is like one of the things that fuels entrepreneurship right in the mm -hmm. country. Cause you, if I build this and grow it, I own it. If you start to say, if I build it and grow it to a certain point, I own it when it gets beyond that certain point. And granted, $100 million is large. But when it gets past that certain point, I kind of don't. Now you're going to start to see a lot of $99 million. Wealth, oh, yeah. <laughs> and who knows where the rest of it is? It's going to be sitting in, in Axiotl coins, you know, or something. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting ripped off. Yeah, exactly. Right. People figure you have the system. People figure out the system. And we maybe it's just better to say, like, look, what we know, and this is a terrible idea, but what we know is right now we have 20,000 households that have over $100 million and we need money. Can each of you just right now just like write a check so we can get this amount of money and then like go, go about your business in the future? Um, again, terrible idea. But uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's a... It's, Anyway, the billionaire tax is back. And it seemed like this week it both came back and was not quite killed, but like effectively already. Because every time it comes back, people go, no one's going to pass this. Like there's not a world in which this ends up passing. So it sounds like you're talking about 20 million bucks for these folks. And I know there's only a few folks in the country that are worth more than 100 million. But like, Think of all the places, all the other places you'd rather live if you save 20 million bucks a year. I mean, there's lots of nice places in this world that aren't. <laughs> like, you're just encouraging yeah. these people to leave. It, it doesn't really work. An interesting way to put it. Hmm. All right. Anything else, Doogles? I'm wrapped. That's it. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, hit us on Twitter at Skippy Doogles. Uh, SkippyDoogles.com has all sorts of good info. Uh, we love the listener mail. We love our listeners uh, across the world. And uh, we're so appreciative of the premium subscribers and reviews that you guys have sent recently. So thanks so much. Uh, we'll be in touch. Peace. Thank you.